Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Romans chapter 16. We're dealing with the conclusion to the book of Romans, finishing up here over the next few weeks, and then we'll be transitioning into a new study. Beginning in verse 1 of this chapter, the Apostle Paul um, commended Phoebe to the church, and we took a couple weeks to study that, those first two verses. Last week, we looked again at the concept of greeting, and the Apostle Paul telling the church to greet Priscilla and Achilla, his fellow workers in Christ. And we looked at that greeting, we talked about the church that is in their house. And then continuing on in these verses, immediately following that and going all the way to verse 16, in just very brief snippets and statements, the Apostle Paul sends a greeting to various Christians in the church at Rome that he knows. Most of these people we know very little about. We already have talked extensively about the word greet. There's not a lot of additional information to say in these verses. I want to read them to you because they're very important. They're given to us by the Holy Spirit. But we're not going to try to build a whole message around all of these individuals. But let's read about who they are. He says, greet, there in verse 5, my beloved Epinetus. He was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. They were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. I would like to have a name like that, you Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I want to just think about a couple things. We think about this greeting and this litany of people to greet. You know, Paul's personal address to them as individuals showed his personal concern for them as individuals. These were all people that he knew, that he had met somewhere along life's journey, and he recognizes them, he acknowledges that to the church, and to us as we read the New Testament. These are people that we know virtually nothing about, and yet Paul's personal address to them as individuals shows that he was personally concerned with individuals. 
He knew them. He cared for them. He loved them. And he mentions various things that he knew about them, that they knew about him, and that concerned one another. It's also important to note here that Paul's public commendation, you know, wasn't meant to puff them up before others, like, oh, he mentioned that person, but he didn't mention this one. It wasn't meant to puff up some against others. But it was meant to encourage them and show appreciation to them, which I think is important for us to think about, that we show appreciation, we show recognition to those who have served alongside us, those who we care, those who we know, that we publicly commend one another when it is fitting in the Lord. And so the Apostle Paul leaves us an example of that. I want you to notice the flow of the text. After verse 16, he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And then go to verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. We know a lot about Timothy. We'll talk about him later. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greets you. So he extends to the Christians a greeting, and then Christians who are with him greet the church. It goes both ways. There is a greeting going one way, and there is a greeting coming back the other way. And that's the flow of the chapter. And in the middle of that, in verse 17 to 20, we have an extremely important paragraph given to us by the Holy Spirit. He says, greet, greet, greet. Those who are with me, greet you. And in the middle of that, he says, there are some people I want you to avoid. There are some people I want you to have nothing to do with. So he says, greet, greet, greet. We greet you. And then some people avoid. Let's look at it. This is an important paragraph. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, I appeal to you, brother. And I want us to think about this in this flow of the entire book of the Romans that we have studied. We now have a closing appeal. This is a strong word. I appeal to you. Greet, greet, greet. Brothers, I appeal to you. Watch out. (coughs) Excuse me. For those who cause divisions, for those who create obstacles, the word is scandal on. We already talked about that word in Romans chapter 14. Those who cause offenses, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. Notice this. He's not saying there are some people in the church that cause division because they just whisper all the time and they're gossips. Well, that can happen. That's not what he's talking about here. 
He's not talking about divisions and obstacles because people in the church are just divisive and, and, and kind of snip at each other in personal relationships. We're not talking about that here. He says there are some that are causing divisions and obstacles that is contrary to the doctrine that you have learned. And he says those individuals who have caused division and obstacles that you were to watch out for, what does he say that you were to do concerning them? Avoid them. Avoid them. (coughs) Somebody get me a glass of water. (coughs) I'm sorry. hate to say that. But I got something stuck in my throat and I'm going to have to gag it out here. And I hate to do that publicly in front of you. (coughs) So he says... Create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. And then he gives us some some ways to recognize them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They are serving what? Their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. This is an important statement, the next thing he says. I want you to be wise to what is good. And I want you to be innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Station break while I take a drink. (coughs) Sorry about that. So we've had a litany of people to greet. When we get past this paragraph, when we get to verse 21, we are going to see some people who are with Paul greeting the church in Rome. And in between, he gives a closing appeal where he says, Christian, Christian, I appeal to you. Watch out. Be on your guard. Be careful. There are some people who are causing divisions and obstacles that are contrary to what I've said in this letter? Avoid them. That's a pretty strong word. Avoid them. Now what does this mean? Let's tear this paragraph apart this week and next and think about some very important things in this closing appeal. Remember this book of Romans that we've been studying for all these weeks and months, even years, has laid out Christian doctrine in the most systematic and comprehensive form that we have anywhere in the New Testament. He has gone through Christian doctrine, the basics of our understanding of salvation, who Jesus is, what he has done, 
what he accomplished on the cross, who the Spirit is and how he works, all the various things that we have studied in this book, this doctrine that we have learned. I hope you've learned it. I hope if we've, as we've gone through the book of Romans, that you can sit there and you can say, I've learned some things in this book. There are some things I didn't know before, but now I know them. I've learned this. And as I have learned this, and now I analyze truth differently maybe than I used to, when I see teaching that does not align with that, I avoid it. Amen. I have nothing to do with it. This is the closing appeal. The word watch out that's translated there, which is really the closing appeal. This is the command. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out. That word watch out is literally a word which means to put a mark, to put a mark on it. So it's kind of like this. The same word is used in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, I press toward the mark. I press toward the mark. And he's talking about a runner and how when he is running, he sets his eye on the prize. He sets his eye on the target. He fixes his gaze on it. I imagine, Hub Tama, when you're running, you kind of got that going through your mind, that you know where the, the finish line is. You know where the tape is. And you set your eye on it and you are running to it. You, you are focusing your attention. This is like drawing a bead on it. You guys were out hunting. Some of you girls, some of you ladies are too. And you see an elk or you see a deer and you, you draw a bead on it. You, you focus your attention on the game. And he's saying here, I appeal to you brothers, draw a bead. Focus your attention. Now, this word is used in other places in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians and he's talking about conflict resolution. He's talking about sin. He says, brothers, if anyone in your midst is overcome in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. And then he says, watching out for yourself. Watching out for yourself kind of very closely akin to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, you know, why do you try to pull the little splinter out of someone else's eye when you've got a two-by-four in your own? Focus your attention on yourself. And so he's like saying, you know, as Christians, we should draw a bead on ourselves. Keep watch on yourself. He also tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he uses this word in a positive sense when he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, he's telling us there, not only should we watch out for those who are causing divisions and those who are walking contrary, but we should also watch out for those who are walking like Christ. And when you see a brother or sister in the Lord who is setting a godly example and, and they are walking with the Lord, he says, put your eyes on them. Keep your eyes on them. 
and, and do what they do. Live the way they live. Not like you're making them an idol, not like they're make, you're making them God in your life, but no, they're giving you a tangible example of the way to live. Keep your eye on that. Set your gaze on it. Focus on that. Here he's using it in like a negative way. Put a mark, draw a bead. Keep watch out for those who are causing offenses contrary to the doctrine that you've received. Avoid them. So there are some that we keep our eyes on so that when we see the way they live, we can emulate them. And there are some that we keep our eyes on so that we don't get carried away with the error of the wicked, as it says in 2 Peter chapter 3. A closing appeal. Who am I to keep out or to keep a watch out for? Those who cause offenses? Those who cause divisions contrary to the truth. Notice also in this text, you know, what is the standard against which I am to keep watch? It is the doctrine that I learned. Right? The doctrine that I learned. And when someone is teaching a different doctrine, what did the Apostle Paul say in Galatians chapter 1? Even if we, or an angel from heaven, come to you and preach to you any other gospel than what you have received, what does he say? Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If anyone preaches to you any other gospel than what you received, let him be accursed. Also, Paul is setting a very serious standard there. The standard against which I am to keep watch is the clear teaching of the word of God. How am I to respond to them? What does he say? When you see this going on, when you see this happening, what am I to do? Am I to go to their podcast and listen to it? Am I to go to their blog and read it? Am I to think about it like, well, maybe that has some plausibility. What am I to do? I'm to close the page. I'm to avoid it. I'm to change the station. I'm not to put it in my mind. He says, avoid it. How am I to respond to them? Um, why? What danger do they pose? They don't, serve our, they don't serve our Lord Christ, do they? They serve what? Their own appetites, he says. Their own sensual desires. And, and they deceive. Notice what, they, what he says there. They deceive the hearts of the naive. That in naivety... We sometimes listen to people or teaching, and it deceives us. So there's this closing appeal. Notice with me Titus chapter 3. I want to just show you a couple other texts that kind of speak to this issue in some various ways. In Titus chapter 3, at the end of the book of Titus, he says avoid. See that word? Avoid foolish debates genealogies, quarrels and arguments about the law, they are unprofitable and they are worthless. 
reject a divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted or warped and is sinning and is self-condemned. Now think about what the Apostle Paul is telling us there. This is very closely aligned with what our Savior said in Matthew 18. But Paul is saying when there is a divisive person, and we're not just talking about somebody who slips up with the tongue and likes to gossip and those kind of things. We're talking about somebody who is divisive because they are teaching heretical doctrine. These things that he goes and talks about earlier in this section. Reject this divisive person after a first and second warning. Why? This person is warped. Perverted, warped, sins, and is self-condemned. Notice with me also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Same thing we see here in Romans chapter 16. Put a mark on it. Take note of that person. And then what? Don't associate with him. Why don't we associate with him? So that he may be ashamed. But in not associating with him, he said you don't treat him as an enemy, but you warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace, always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. There again, he gives us a strong admonition to take note of those who are not obeying the instructions of the Lord in His Word and are walking contrary to the teaching of God's Word and to be careful of our association. Don't associate with it. Avoid. I want to just talk about this for a minute. Avoid. Let's talk about separations and separatism. And let's just think about something in relationship to what we are talking about here, especially when we're talking about brothers in the Lord, other Christians, and maybe even other churches. Other churches that are basically Bible-preaching churches and yet may differ with us. Let's think about separations. Let's think about the way we do these things. And let's set it in some context of maybe the way we view others with whom we disagree. One thing that I just want to say here, when we as Christians specifically separate from some other Christian, it should be a last resort. It should be a last resort. It shouldn't be the first thing out the get-go that we're always looking to do is to be like, we're the holier-than-thou club and we're avoiding everyone else. It should be a last resort. Number two, as he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it should always be with meekness considering ourselves. It should always be with meekness, gentleness, looking to ourselves, considering ourselves, and our own propensity to sin, to fall, and thinking about the way, as he says in Galatians chapter 6, that we would like to be treated if we were in that situation. 
It should not be secretly enjoyed. It should not be secretly enjoyed. It shouldn't be like, oh, that brother in the Lord is doing that, and we are now going to separate from them. And we puff ourselves up in some way as we do it. Secretly enjoying the process, making ourselves feel better than them because we are more holy or we are more righteous or we know the standard of God's word better. It should not be for frivolous cause. It should not be for frivolous cause and it should not be the defining characteristic of a movement or a ministry. The defining characteristic of a church or a ministry or a movement should not be that all the time we are just looking for people to avoid, to separate from. I, I said that in the kind of the context of the tragic devolution of what was called fundamentalism. Fundamentalism was a movement that grew out of the early 1900s. I don't want to do a history lesson now. Evangelical fundamentalism. But fundamentalism was a teaching that looked at the fundamentals of the Christian faith and based Christian fellowship on those fundamentals. But as time went on, that movement devolved and became a movement of separatism that just looked to move away from every other church and every other denomination and every other group with whom you did not agree on every little thing. And without going any further into it, that's not what we're getting into in this verse. That we as Christians are just all the time looking for some little thing that this other group or this other person doesn't do 100% the way we do or even 100% perfectly and then we have nothing to do with them and we avoid them. We're not talking about that. We are talking about false teaching that is contrary. Now notice this in the text. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles and notice the word contrary. Contrary to the doctrine you have received. The characteristics of this false teaching is that it is contrary to the clear teaching of the Word of God. Now, what does that mean, that it is contrary? In the Greek language, there is a prefix, anti, and it means against. So we would say something like an anti-Christ. An antichrist is contrary to Christ because he is what? Against Christ. He is contrary to Christ because he is against. But that's not the word that we see here when it says contrary. The word here, contrary, is the Greek word para, which is the word alongside or parallel. Think with me of parallel lines. Perpendicular lines, parallel lines, parallel lines, para, 
It runs alongside. What he is talking about is somebody who has set up a contrary system. It is not complementary, but it is an alternate system that parrots the true thing, but it is deviating in the essentials. It is running alongside. It is contrary. It is against, but it's against in a different way. Because in many ways it looks very similar. It's parallel to it. It is parallel to the truth, but in being parallel to the truth, it is a completely different system. It has deviated from the truth. He says you watch for that and you avoid it. Somebody who is against something and vocally against it is contrary in that way is pretty easy to recognize. But somebody who is contrary in this way that is setting up a parallel system that looks very much the same and yet is deviating in small matters in their mind, to most people look small, but are truly essential, ends up leading someone in a completely different direction. These are the characteristics of the false teaching we see. He says avoid it. Avoid it. Avoid it. Let's think about the word to avoid. This is not a passive response. It is an active choice. It is an active choice. You avoid it. You make a choice. You avoid this. There are two reasons that we could say that we are to avoid false teaching. Number one would be our own self-preservation, and number two would be the restoration of the offender. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, he says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts Good morals. Self-preservation. Why do I avoid associating with false teaching and false teachers? For my own faith. Because if I associate with it and I listen to it, and I dialogue with it, eventually, what does it do? It weakens my own resolve and my own understanding of the truth, and I end up believing or teaching or practicing things I would never have done. We've all seen this in our own life, have we not? Be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You hang with the wrong crowd. Kids, you know this in school. You hang with the wrong kids who are doing the wrong things. It's not very long until you have gone that very way, that very same direction, and you have embraced it. And our pride says, oh no, that would never happen to me. But the truth is, it will. 
Do not be deceived. So self-preservation and then also restoration. We saw that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says you don't treat him as an unbeliever. You don't treat him as an enemy. You admonish him as a brother, seeking his restoration. But you do so from a platform of avoiding the false teaching. Think about the word to avoid. This is pretty strong in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 13 to 15. Hold on to instruction. Don't let it go. Guard it. It is your life. Don't set foot on the path of the wicked. Don't proceed in the way of evil ones. Now notice how he heightens this. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass it by. Notice how he reinforces the concept of avoiding. He says, avoid that path. Don't go on that path. Turn away from it. Pass the other way. We should take this very strongly. When he says here, avoid false teaching, he says what to us? Don't travel that road. Turn away from it. Pass on. Don't have anything to do with it. Now, why don't we avoid it? Why don't we? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Number one, the first reason sometimes we don't avoid it is just our own overt rebellion. They draw me in with my flesh, and there's flattery as we see in this text, and I am deceived, and all of a sudden I'm going with a crowd I should not be going with. And it's just overt rebellion on my part that sets me up to go away and to go astray. And instead of avoiding something, I embrace it. And it's just rebellion. Sometimes it's simple naivety. I'll just love them to Jesus. You know, I want to win them. I have good intentions. And, and in my pride, I think that they'll listen to me and I'm going to have a better influence on them than they're going to have on me. And so in my naivety, rather than avoiding the false teaching, I listen to it. I embrace that and I do it. Sometimes it's my pride. Well, I'm strong enough. It won't affect me. It won't affect my kids. And it's pride. It's like, I can listen to that stuff. I can be around that teaching, and I'll never believe it. But over time, and with saturation, I become immersed in it. And I no longer even recognize it for what it is. Let's just think about the day that Paul wrote this. The ancient world was permeated with falsehood, wasn't it? It was permeated with it. Among the pagans, in the Greek and the Roman culture, there's all these groups that are teaching all kinds of falsehoods. There's Epicureanism, there's Stoicism, there's the Gnostics. A lot of the New Testament is written by Paul dealing with the error of Gnosticism, telling Christians to avoid it, to watch out for it, to beware of it. 
So there's pagan Greek and Roman cultural influences. There's also within monotheistic Judaism, there are the Judaizers and Pharisaic legalism. There are the Sadducees who are like modernistic liberalism. They don't really believe in all the miracles of the Old Testament and all that stuff. They're a political party in Jesus' day. They're the Sadducees. And so in the ancient world, in the context in which Paul is writing this, there are Christians in the church that go online and listen to podcasts by these Stoics and by these Epicureans. And maybe they became a Christian, and before they were a Christian, they were involved in one of the mystery religions that was Gnostic. Or before they were a Christian, they were a Jew, and they were a Pharisee like the Apostle Paul. And they bring all that stuff into the church. All those beliefs come into the church. Why? Because that's what people believed before they were Christians. And it's what permeated the culture. False teaching. Wow, it sounds a lot like today. Because you know what? False teaching permeates the present world, doesn't it? Totally. And it not only permeates the world, it permeates us. Because we live in the world. And so there's all this stuff like wokeness. All these beliefs that come out of the woke movement in America. And and these things are just like now the lifeblood of our culture. And then there's postmodernistic relativism. And I can't explain every, every one of these words today. But relativism is just this belief that there is no absolute truth. Truth is whatever you think truth is. So it's very relativistic. There's utilitarian, pragmatic uh, beliefs that, that just look the world like it's just a pragmatic thing and you just you know, do what works for you and it's very utilitarian. There's expressive individualism. Boy, we see this. Expressive individualism is very much related to the present wokeness, the woke movement in America and in the world today. There's Darwinian naturalism. Darwinian natural. What did Darwin teach? You're just a product of dumb luck, blind chance, and, and enough throws of the dice, and eventually everything came into existence, and there is no God. That false teaching permeates the world that we live in. You go to any national park in America, and you will see on billboards and placards everywhere the religion of Darwinian naturalism. It permeates our world. Environmental pantheism. Environmental pantheism. This belief, a belief that the planet is, 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 is God. And then we sin against the planet. And, and we have climate change. Climate change is a real thing that is man-made because we are sinning against the planet. And we're all so worked up about this. In fact, I was reading in the Jackson Daily. I cut this out because it was on the front page. It was an article about a therapist in Jackson Hole that you can actually go to now. You can pay this person good money. And she has been working hard to understand how our climate is changing 
And now she now takes clients and she helps them cope with the anxiety that they feel because of climate change. Don't you feel a lot of anxiety over climate change? I mean, but think about it. A false belief, a false belief that is now changing people's inner state to where they feel anxiety because of false beliefs. It says avoid this stuff, have nothing to do with it. Now where does it all come from? What is the main purveyors of these beliefs in our culture today? Where does all this come from? Okay, I put it right at the top of the list. The church. And I put it there so every other entity that I pick on, you can't say that I didn't first pick on the church. But the church is hugely, the church in America has become complicit in the false teachings that are running rampant in our culture. Many churches have become woke to their core. The church, the schools, the arts, the media, the entertainment world, all of these things have now become the main purveyors of these things. So then we ask ourselves, how do I guard myself and my kids from these false teachings? He says, avoid them. What does that mean? How do I avoid these things? How do I avoid these things when they are saturating the very world in which we live? They are everywhere. And it is contrary, it is against the doctrine that we have received. How do we avoid them? And Jesus said we are to live in the world but not be of the world. Paul said... If you didn't associate with those who are immoral and every other thing in 1 Corinthians 6, you'd have to go out of the world. How do we avoid them? How do we avoid it and yet live in this world? It's very difficult, isn't it? Because it is the very air that we breathe. It has saturated our world. The first thing I would just say is this. Take active control. Take active control. There are things that you should do in your home, parents, and there are things you should not allow done in your home. Computers and televisions and those type of media-driven devices should be for public spaces in your home. They're not secret devices to use to pursue anything that your kids want to pursue. There is so much garbage out there that your kids can be exposed to that will destroy their life and their minds. You must take active control in every way of that which comes into our mind. We have to make difficult choices. Difficult choices. When you recognize that someone in your life is leading you in a direction contrary, you have to in some way draw that line. It takes making difficult choices to protect yourself and to preserve 
your faith. Saturate your mind with the truth. We can't say this one enough, right? The importance of being daily in God's word, thinking God's thoughts after God, reading his word and feeding on it. Listening to good Christian broadcasting, good Christian teaching. Fellowshipping with other believers in small groups where you're studying together the truth, but saturating your mind with the truth. And making your home a haven. Making your home a place of safety. To get away from the error. To be a place of refuge. To teach the truth in your home. These people and these teachings that deceive us and lead us from Christ appear innocent. But they are destructive. And he says in this passage, I would have you to be wise to what is good, but stupid or simple to that which is evil. You don't have to know all the garbage that's going on in the world in order to relate to it. That is a lie from Satan. It's better not to know it. Be innocent towards what is evil, wise towards what is good. And God will soon crush Satan under our feet. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. I pray that as we think today, Lord, on these things and as we, we wrestle with how we relate in a culture that has just so rejected you and your authority, I pray that you would give us wisdom as individuals to, to walk with you in truth. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.